Pickaxe and Roll. I'm your host, Ryan Blackburn at NBA Blackburn on Twitter. It is Sunday night as I'm recording this uh, following a very interesting game, uh, game three of the Eastern Conference Finals. The Milwaukee Bucks picked that one up on the road. They win, and uh, there was an interesting bet on DraftKings earlier today. Uh, make sure uh, this podcast is sponsored by DraftKings, so make sure to go follow them and, and uh, go use promo code D- uh, MHS when you are trying to uh, sign up for them if you're a new user. Uh, there was an interesting bet on that one that Trey Young would be the top scorer of the game, that he would bounce back, and it was looking like he was going to do that until he stepped back and, and stepped on and rolled his ankle on a referee. Uh, referee was standing out of bounds. It was completely inadvertent. He was in normal uh, refereeing position. And Trey Young just stepped out of bounds and rolled his ankle right on him and had to come out of the game and was clearly affected by that when he returned. So he scored 35 points in total. Uh, Chris Middleton had a big game, scored 38 points. He was the top scorer of the game. But I was upset because I, I bet on that that Trey Young promo and it was going to hit and it would have been good money. But it is what it is. That's the life of sports betting. On this episode, I am going to talk about Damian Lillard and the Portland Trailblazers in the first segment. They recently announced during this game, in fact, during the fourth quarter of this game, uh, that Chauncey Billups would be the next basketball coach, the next head coach for the Blazers, Signed a five-year deal. According to Chris Haynes, it's a four-year deal with a team option in year five. Uh, So really, it is a four-year deal. Really, that means it's a three-year deal because they could fire him and and like after three years, and, and that's usually what teams would do anyway. But here's the thing. There was a lot of pushback on that hire for obvious reasons. And the fact that the Blazers... Well, actually, I think it's probably best that if I just go through the timeline of events, that I could talk about the things that have led to what is believed to be Damian Lillard uh, possibly asking out, not really fully sure what it is, but it could be on the verge of asking out. We're not really sure. Uh, That's going to be the first segment of this podcast. Then segments two and three, I'll be doing the the center uh, big man rotation uh, player grades, offseason evaluations, things that I've done over the course of the past week. Did the guards on Monday and Wednesday. Did the forwards on Friday with Jake Coyne. Make sure to go listen to that episode. And now we're going to do the centers tonight. I think that this is going to be a very interesting time for centers uh, with Denver. And it's going to be very telling what they do in free agency uh, and and the draft, to be frank. So we'll see what happens there. But for now, let's talk about Lillard. Here is the timeline of events for the Blazers. During the season, they struggle. Local media says, hey, uh, don't blame Terry Stotts. Like, Terry Stotts is a great coach. Lillard backs his coach. Nothing nothing doing there. They write the ship after they make a midseason trade. Basically trade some of their future for some present, try to straighten some things out, add Norman Powell, and he does a good job. And they they get into a position where they could beat Denver in the first round. And then they don't. 
as Nuggets fans know. They don't, and it's pretty embarrassing for the Blazers, because the Nuggets, as everybody knows here, they're without Jamal Murray, Will Barton, P.J. Dozier, they were starting Austin Rivers, uh, Monte Morris was just coming off of injury, they were starting Faku Campazzo. Like, the Nuggets had no business really winning that series, but they did it because they had a great confluence of players that came together, and Jokic who really carried them through. But the Portland failures were all over the place. They couldn't defend. They couldn't figure out how to stop a one-man crew. Dame was awesome during that time, but the rest of the Blazers, they couldn't really help him enough. C.J. McCollum was the guy that a lot of people pointed out, said, hey, he's not been good enough. And Blazers fans, they made it very clear after the season that they, they wanted to trade McCollum to reshape the roster to better suit Dame's needs, to get a little bit bigger, more athletic, to be able to handle teams with big front courts, athletic shooting front courts, because they haven't been able to do that given that they've played so small. When they had their end-of-year presser, it was an absolute sham. Terry Stotts, he said his thing, he did fine. Neil Olshay, he is the general manager over there, might be the president of basketball operations, it's pretty fuzzy, but those titles are always fuzzy. Neil Olshay is the main decision maker over there, and he put all of the failings on the roster, and basically on on what the coaches were doing, what the roster that he did, uh, that he put together, what they ultimately did. He said that it wasn't on the talent level, like they should have been able to compete, basically trying to acquit himself of any of the blame saying that it was either the player's fault, that they didn't perform up to their talent, or it was the coach's fault, that he didn't help them perform up to their talent. Whether those things are true is neither here nor there. It really was the start of things going pretty badly. Bad feelings all around. Neil O'Shea has been kind of a, a mess there. Ever since 2016 free agency, when he signed Evan Turner... Kent Bazemore, and Alan Crabb to big deals. Coach Terry Stotts was fired after Damian Lillard. He only showed a modicum of unhappiness with him, but they basically acted on that pretty quickly. And then the Blazers consulted Damian Lillard to see what his next coach would be, as they should in that situation. And Lillard said that he liked Jason Kidd or Chauncey Billups, and that he thought that both of them would be great. They're point guards, guys that he respects in the league. Uh, Shouldn't be any problem with that, except uh, that when the Blazers chose Billups, there is a large portion of Blazers fans, of NBA fans, just people connected to the NBA in general, that were really unhappy that it was Billups. Uh, Nuggets fans, I'm sure you're pretty happy. Uh, But one of the things that I didn't know, being that I'm 24, uh, I didn't know that this was a thing. But apparently back in 1997, there were some potential rape charges that Billups had quieted down 24 years ago. 
And people are pretty upset about that. People are upset that in a in a business that's been as male-dominated as sports is, especially basketball, that has had problems like the ones that have been in the Dallas Mavericks front office that I'm sure have peppered all up and down the entire NBA. People were calling the Chauncey Billups hire insensitive and, frankly, irresponsible and irredeemable. Some of those are my words. And let me tell you, I don't, I didn't know about this Chauncey Billups stuff until a couple days ago when it was brought up. So, maybe that's on me. Maybe that's on me for not doing my homework and knowing and maybe paying more attention to these things. But I'm going to give myself a pass because I'm 24. The Blazers, who are doing their homework on these candidates and know the ins and outs of them, they should know that if there's if there's something in your past that people are going to get upset by that maybe should prevent you from working in a workplace like this, they should know that and they should act accordingly. Maybe they felt that they should, like, maybe they felt that he was fine after the situation. Maybe they felt that after 24 years, he had paid his debt, paid his sins. Not everybody feels that way. I think actually very few people feel that way in regard to this situation. But the Blazers choose Billups. Blazers fans, they get upset. Some even call out Damian Lillard for his part in the process. It was very vocal. In turn, not not he himself, uh, but it was it was made public. It was made clear that Lillard would have some say in the coaching staff hires. Uh, what Lillard basically said on Twitter publicly was that he was just asked, "Hey, do you like these guys as coaching candidates?" And he said yes. He probably didn't know anything about Chauncey's past just like me. But once he found out about it, he had an opportunity to sort of backtrack on his uh, putting his faith in Chauncey, if that's what you'll say. And he chose not to. And I think Blazers fans were upset by that aspect of it. And they called him out. Sunday night, Sunday afternoon, Actually, Chris Haynes reported, he's the reporter that's closest to Damian Lillard in the league. Um, he shared that Dame was fed up with this thing and that if he were to ask out and ask for a trade, demand a trade, then some of the onus would fall on the fans that were calling for, like, calling him out for this stuff after he had showed as much dedication to the franchise as possible. Now, I have a lot of thoughts about that. Let me start with that for a second. It's a little bit, like, I'm I'm a little bit annoyed with Chris Haynes in general. Um, maybe I shouldn't say that, but, like, there are certain things that you should and should not publish. There's certain conversations that you can have, uh, but to choose to word things in that nature where... It's basically absolving Damian Lillard of any of the blame and trying to put the onus on fans, trying to put the onus on coaches. Uh, Dame was consulted for 
that coaching hire. There is no way that they wouldn't consult him. And so they tried to file that away. Chris Haynes tried to file that away. And that's just not true. I think that's not great. It's not a great report, is what I'll say. But as for the basketball side of things, you could see this from a mile away. I don't think any NBA fan, even Blazers fans, I don't think they could really blame Damian Lillard for this, for potentially wanting out. Nine years, Dame has been a part of the Portland Trailblazers organization, and the furthest he has ever been was a sweep in the conference finals in 2019, the year that they beat Denver in Game 7 on their home floor. That year, KD didn't even play. And the Blazers got shellacked. They haven't been competitive. They haven't been close. If Dame wants to be competitive, it's fine. It's understandable. But he's always been seen as a loyal superstar. Somebody who's just willing to do things the hard way. He was not running from that grind. As he said to Paul George and Patrick Beverly on Instagram back during the bubble last year. But when the fans came at him, it's very possible that everything that he's been putting up with as the only superstar in Portland, as a guy who's been loyal to his fan base to a fault, who has put himself in a less than advisable position. Like, he's probably upset. He's probably unhappy. And so if he wants to go, it shouldn't be surprising. But the fact that this other post already happened with this Chris Haynes report, that's now putting the onus on fans as to why he's leaving, that's a little bit off. That's a little bit BS. I think everybody's at fault here. I think everybody can share some of the blame. Neil Olshay is the one who should be blamed the most because he screwed this up to high hell. But Blazers fans coming after their star uh, online, not a great look. He's ultimately not the one that has to cut the check. They still could have made a different decision. They could have taken that into account, and it's pretty clear that their interviewing process wasn't super comprehensive. I think Lillard shares some faults for the way that he responded to a fan base that for the first time didn't like love him unconditionally. This is the first time he's ever received less than unconditional love. And I don't think he's responded well to that. The Blazers have failed Lillard. Lillard has failed the fans. The fans have failed Lillard. Chris Haynes is being Lillard's mouthpiece. There's a lot to parse from this. But what it really all points to, in my opinion, is whether Damian Lillard should be traded or not. And I think the answer is yes. I think we're kind of nearing that bridge. While Lillard still has some prime years left, maybe three to four, two to three, He's playing at an incredible level right now. Not sure he's going to get any better than this, but who knows? Will he actually be traded? I don't know. We're going to see. 
I know that the major roster changes in Portland are going to have to happen in some way, shape, or form, but maybe that's trading CJ. Maybe that's trading Nurk. Maybe that's just trying to reconfigure things around Dame. Maybe that's good enough. But if Dame were to ask out, could any team actually accumulate enough assets to satisfy Portland? I don't know. I think so. I think if he demands out that he's not going to play another game in Portland, then maybe that changes their mind about how much they're willing to accept. Teams that should be willing to spend big, like they, they definitely should be willing to break the bank for him. Because he just signed a Supermax contract, he's not just going to walk away from that. Like, he wants to get into a good situation, but I think he, like he's, he's shown that he's willing to stick out some tough times. It just can't be awful like it has become in Portland. I think that there are six teams that I kind of circled that just, just off the top of my head that makes sense here. Boston, Philly, New York, Indiana. New Orleans, and Oklahoma City. I think they could all put together a package that makes sense. Uh, Boston could throw together Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, and Picks. Philly could put Ben Simmons, Tyrese Maxey, Matisse Dybul on the table. Maybe that's enough, maybe it's not. New York, they could put up uh, R.J. Barrett, a bunch of Picks, uh, Mitchell Robinson, guys like that. Indiana, they could they have just a lot of different pieces, like a lot of different smaller pieces, whether it's like they're not going to trade Levert, but if they traded Malcolm Brogdon and DeMonte Sabonis, uh, then maybe that's good enough for the Blazers, where they could still keep CJ, they can add Sabonis and maybe try to retool that way. TJ Warren's also there. New Orleans, Ingram, and a bunch of picks. That makes a modicum of sense. You want to surround Zion in any way that you can. Keep him happy. A Lillard-Zion pick and roll, or having those two guys stagger, would be pretty good. And then Oklahoma City, they have the mother load package where they could offer somebody like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, the sixth overall pick this year, and a couple other firsts down the line. That's pretty good. That's pretty competitive. And the player is young enough in Shea that Portland could also just turn around and rebuild around Shea if they so wanted. But should Denver get involved here? That's the big question that Nuggets fans are going to ask me. That's the big question that uh, I've, I've been approached by with other national folks. Should Denver get involved? Well, you're not trading Jokic. You'd want to add Dame to Jokic. I don't think that you can trade Porter, Gordon, and like Barton. I don't think you can do that because it just kind of, it kind of puts the onus on a bunch of other middling wings and forwards to kind of fill in the gap around Dame, Jokic, and then Murray when he comes back healthy. I don't think that either team would be interested in that package. And the Blazers may not even accept it. It would have to be a Dame for Jamal Murray and other pieces swap. 
and as somebody who has been very on the pro Murray train, like he's he's somebody who I'm just not gonna I'm not gonna get away from him. Like I, I people will laugh about that, but he's averaged twenty four six and five in the playoffs and like thirty three games in his playoff career so far. He has been great in his playoff career. 59% true shooting, made a lot of big shots, had 50-point performances already. The injury complicates things, of course, but I just, I'm, I'm just going to say no. Like I feel like Denver would have won a title had he been healthy. Like They would have gotten past Phoenix. I think they would have gotten past LA. I think they would beat whoever comes out of the East. If it's Milwaukee, Denver's in a pretty good spot, actually. It's tough. I understand why others would want this. I understand why other people would say so. But I just can't get involved. I can't do it. I think that the injury, of course, complicates matters. And whether you think that this year matters that much, then, or this, this upcoming season, 21-22, if you want Damian Lillard for that year, then maybe that changes your mind. But what I've sort of found is that there are things that are more important than championships. And I think what the Nuggets stand for matters. I think what they're building with Jokic and Murray, Michael Malone at the helm, add Michael Porter Jr. into that if he gets an extension. I think what they're building is important for themselves and for the league. A homegrown team that doesn't take a shortcut just because it presents itself. And trusting who you're drafting, who you bring in, developing them, sticking out the tough times, and ultimately becoming a great team. I think that matters. And if Denver can pull this off, then I, it will just be so valuable. It'll be so much more valuable than if they were to trade for Damian Lillard. Despite the fact that Lillard doesn't feel like a James Harden or a Kevin Durant in this situation, or a Kawhi Leonard. He's not a mercenary player. He'd be somebody you'd want to continue to build around, and maybe maybe he sticks out the rest of his career in Denver. Or maybe he doesn't. Maybe that's not ultimately what he wants. But I think that's what Murray wants. I think Murray would love to be here. I think he is committed. And finding players that are committed to your identity and to who you are and willing to give their all for that, I think that matters a lot. And it sets a great standard for Denver sports if the Nuggets are able to pull it off. So I'm going to say no. I understand if others would say yes. It's tempting. If you could put together a, a team that has Damian Lillard, Nikola Jokic, and Michael Porter on it, that's a lot of talent. That team should win a title. But then again, the Nets should have won a title. The Lakers should have won a title. It's never guaranteed. So appreciate what you have.
Let's take a break. When we come back, we are going to start breaking down the Nuggets big man rotation. We'll be right back. And we're back. Pickaxe and roll. Ryan Blackburn here. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, really appreciate all the love and support. Would love to be able to get over 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts. I'm at 96 right now. Would love to see that creep over 100. It would mean the world to me if any of you are just sitting on your phone or if you're in the car or if you're, hopefully you're not in the car. Don't pull out and use your phone while you're in the car and driving. But if you're at work, wherever you are, uh, it would mean the world if you could uh, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts for this pod. That would be super cool. All right, let's talk about the center rotation. Let's talk about the big man rotation. Some of these guys can move to power forward, uh, and I'll talk about them for sure. But uh, most of these guys are, I think, if they are with Denver next year, I think they'll play a lot of time at center. So here's what we're going to do. It's about Paul Millsap, JaVale McGee, Zeke Naji, and Nikola Jokic. We'll finish up with Joker. Uh, he doesn't need, there's not a ton to recap here. Like he gets an A plus. I'm going to kind of throw that out there right now. Um, but I think that there's a lot to talk about with Millsap, McGee, and Najee. And I mentioned some of my Najee discussion with Jake Coyne on the last episode, which was really good. And it had some good free agency info. So if you're wanting to get a preview of that and where I see some of these guys going forward and where Jake sees them. That's a good episode to listen to as well. Uh, But let's talk about Paul. I'm going to break this down into three different categories, the season overview, overview, the season grade, and then the off-season outlook. Uh, Season overview for Paul. He began the season as the starting power forward for the Nuggets. If you remember, Denver's starting unit at the beginning of the year was Murray, Harris, Porter, Millsap, Jokic. And what we learned pretty early on, there were signs in the first four games before Porter went out due to COVID, but then it really became apparent when he came back that made his way back into the starting unit, was that Denver's starting unit was too big and too slow. Millsap, though, he began the season as the starting power forward, and it was flawed, like I said, but he helped really hold down the ship. There were times where he wasn't super reliable. There were times where he was out of position defensively because there were things that he thought he could do that he couldn't do anymore. But for the most part, Paul Millsap did a good job of holding things down at the starting power forward position play about 20 minutes in between 15 and 25 most of the time. Sometimes he'd creep up to 30, but he would play, kind of held things down there, and then he got injured, and he sat out for a while, and I don't remember what the injury was, but in that time, Porter slid to power forward because I think Green was out for a while as well. And so Denver didn't really have an opportunity to play green at power forward, Jokic at center, Porter at small forward. So what they ultimately did was they moved Porter to power forward and realized, hey, this is actually his best position with this current cast. 
He doesn't really work with the other power forwards and, and Jokic, but he does work at power forward himself. So when Millsap came back, he wasn't in the starting lineup anymore. The Nuggets had traded for Aaron Gordon, who they were more using as like a wing. Porter was being used as the four. And Millsap, he had to figure out how to be a good backup, and it ultimately fell at backup center. Despite the fact that the Nuggets brought in JaVale McGee, who I'll talk about next, they focused in on Paul being the backup center, being the primary backup guy. He didn't play on back-to-backs. He had a couple times where he sat out. But most of the time, he was the primary guy there, and I thought he did a pretty good job, to be frank. It wasn't perfect. Not a super great rim protector. The offense kind of bogged down at times, but he, as a switchable, smart defensive center who could pick and pop for three and then post up occasionally, was very useful. The Nuggets found a good rhythm with their second unit where they would have Porter as the small forward, Green as the power forward, and Millsap as the center. Sometimes that changed around. Sometimes it was three guards and then Green and Millsap. Sometimes Millsap uh, didn't even play and it was Green and McGee. Sometimes it was, I think a couple times it was Millsap and McGee. Those weren't as great. But we did see Millsap get into a good rhythm and he helped keep the ship together. And ultimately, it helped Denver advance out of the first round. Millsap had a couple of good moments in that first round where I think especially in game two, he really bounced back, helped Denver get across, and Denver by the end of uh, by the middle of the fourth quarter, the game was already over. Jokic didn't have to come back in because of the effort that Millsap put together. Things kind of fell apart against the Suns. It was pretty clear that throughout the season Millsap was tiring out, but it was good to see him get through most of this year. And he did his job. So for the season grade, I'm giving him a B-. It wasn't perfect. I think there are a lot of things that I would point to and say, man, I wish he could do that better. But there are things that he couldn't control. And I think he mostly made the most of it. Uh, Maybe I could even give him a B. I don't think you can give him an A. I think there was definitely a a lowering in performance. And him really hitting the physical wall in a lot of cases was really tough for Denver. They couldn't advance because of that. But they did figure out how to survive the regular season. And Millsap being able to help do that before Gordon got there, before Porter got things figured out, that was big. Offseason outlook. The main question that I'm going to ask for these next three guys, uh, Millsap, McGee, and Najee. Is Paul Millsap what the Nuggets need going forward in the front court? When you ask yourself, what is Denver's future looking like? Well, if you've got Gordon here, you know you're going to have Jokic and Porter, unless something drastic changes. You're trying to fill in the backup spots. You're trying to figure out what fits best. And from what I can see, I think that Millsap is probably done in Denver think that the Nuggets need some athleticism behind Jokic. They need some versatility, which Millsap can't provide, but they need a lot more 
athleticism. They need somebody who can be rangy, who can cover a lot of ground, who rebounds well, maybe blocks some shots, maybe shoots the ball pretty well. Millsap shooting sort of fell off this year. That gives it 35% as, as opposed to the 38, 39%, 40% that the Nuggets were getting used to. It's a, it's a sign of things, I think. Still, it's important to give him credit. He was here for four years, devoted his heart, his time, his soul into this Nuggets organization when he didn't have to. He could have chosen to go anywhere, and he decided to come to Denver because he saw something special with Yoke and because he thought that he could contribute to a championship contender. And he could. If Murray was still here, maybe Millsap has his first ring. Maybe that's the note he would have chosen to go out on. I don't know what he's going to want to do for the rest of his career. Maybe he still comes back, but it's more in a reserve role as opposed to a primary bench role. But I would say that his rotation days in Denver, with Najee in the fold, with others potentially in the wings, I'd say that's probably behind him. And that's okay. This is the circle of life here. And Millsap has contributed so many great moments and so many great minutes to Denver. And he will be remembered for that for sure. So hopefully he comes back as a veteran leader and the Nuggets can treat him as such. We'll see. Let's move to JaVale McGee, who's going to be shorter here. Uh, His season overview, he played for Cleveland for the first half of the season. And then during the second half, right before the trade deadline, he was acquired. I thought that he would fill in as the backup center. I actually thought that Millsap wouldn't play. I thought that Denver would go with Green and McGee as their primary backup uh, frontcourt, but that never really manifested. Most of the time, it was Millsap and Green who played. McGee would play whenever Millsap would rest, and sometimes he would spot Green for some minutes here or there. But most of the time, McGee was just brought in to be kind of that veteran bench leader, that vocal presence, and he was good at that. Surprisingly, of the veterans that Denver has on their roster, it wasn't like Jermichael Green, it wasn't Paul Millsap, it wasn't Austin Rivers who they brought in. JaVale McGee seemed to be that guy who was stepping up as a vocal guy, which is great. Sometimes it comes from weird places, and McGee being able to step up and be that guy I think was probably helpful. I think Nuggets fans and Nuggets coaches and Nuggets players would all be pretty affirmative to that. But the fact is, he didn't help out in the playoffs. He didn't have a chance to, of course, but he didn't help. He was only able to get into one game, really. So for his season grade, I'm giving him a C-. Because while Millsap was able to be on the court and be helpful for the team, McGee wasn't. It wasn't his choice, of course, and he still contributed some veteran leadership and some good communication and I think was definitely a part of that for sure. But he just like it's it's hard to grade him in a positive way, given that he didn't play. So forgive me if you don't think that that's the correct grade, but that's where I'm at. 
is JaVale McGee in this offseason outlook? Is JaVale McGee what the Nuggets need going forward in the front court? I think it's 50-50. I think depending on what you think of Zeke Naji, of what you think of Jamichael Green, whether he wants to be back, I think that Zeke Naji needs to be in the rotation. I think he's somebody that the Nuggets need to continue to develop so that he's ready to play in a playoff series. Because he could be a big weapon, and we'll talk about him soon. The next order of business is whether, like if Zeke is your third big, maybe he's your fourth big, who's the other big? Do you need four bigs? Would you just rather go with wings? I think that's a fair question. But I think you probably need another big because Zeke Naji isn't that. Like he's not a gigantic guy. So is JaVale McGee that guy? Would you prefer Naji to play the four so that McGee could play next to him? Would you prefer Najee to play the five so the green could play next to him? It's a fair question that I'm not sure of. And as the Nuggets try to figure that out, then they'll help figure out what they need to do with McGee. But it would not surprise me if he was back. Like a one-year, $3 million deal. One-year, $4 million deal, something like that. Something where you stay under the luxury tax, but you pay to have a veteran guy around. Who can help? He might not play every night. Jamichael Green might not play every night. But I think you have to get to a place where Zeke Naji does play every night. And we're going to talk about him next. When we come back, talk about Zeke Naji and Nikola Jokic. We'll be right back. segment pickaxe and roll ryan blackburn here thank you so much for tuning in as i said before if you could rate review and subscribe that would be awesome super super cool uh last segment here let's talk about naji and Jokic. naji this year rookie 22nd overall somebody i didn't expect to play and he played 400 minutes which is about 200 more than i thought he would so it was good to see him get into the rotation and show some skills And what he showed, above all else, was an elite catch-and-shoot capability. Najee was solid. Shot over 40% from three this year. uh, On a solid number of attempts as well. 40.7% from three on 59 attempts in 397 minutes. Pretty good. Hard to argue with that. Uh... He was also pretty efficient from two-point range because he had really good shot selection. Uh, Either was at two-point jumpers or he was right at the rim. Of his shooting numbers, like he had uh, like less than 10% of his shots came in that 10-foot to under a three-point line, like in that deep two range, that mid-two range. Most of his shots came from behind the arc, but the other... General large number was either at zero to three feet or three to ten feet. And he was pretty efficient in the zero to three range, not efficient at all in the three to ten. So as he continues to improve, maybe he knocks that number down. Maybe he improves his post game, uh, gets into a spot where he can shoot those shots better. 
Or maybe he just steps back a little bit more and just becomes a mid-range pop guy. I wouldn't do that. I would try to improve his game around the rim as much as possible. Keep him tough. Keep him physical. But he showed that he could shoot the damn ball. And that was really, really important. It was also important that he showed that he could move his feet well defensively. That was the thing that really stood out about him. Beyond the catch-and-shoot ability, in one-on-one coverage and in help-side coverage, he was able to show some really good mobility, some athleticism that I thought he wouldn't have. He changed his body. He improved his physical his physical uh, stature and his physical tools. And that was really good because what it showed was a an ability to improve and a potentially higher ceiling than I thought he had before, especially after watching these playoffs. He was out of the rotation after Aaron Gordon arrived, but he proved a lot in the time that he did get on the floor. Played well around Jokic, played well around Paul. I think there is definitely some opportunity for him to be a pick-and-pop big, but also to be a complementary big man option, where if he's playing next to Jokic, then he's either in the corner or above the arc, or he's just cutting through the lane and trying to move off ball as much as possible to draw some defense. Maybe he uses that 6'10", 6'11", frame and puts a guy under the rim so that Jokic can dump it down into him for a dunk. There are ways that he could do that, and given Denver's athleticism, given their just a, their sheer number of bodies now, where you could say that he could get a pretty decent matchup here, it's exciting to think about. It's exciting to think about what his role could be. So I'm going to give for his season grade a B plus. I debated A minus, but I'll give it a B plus. He did only play 400 minutes, so it's still a small sample size. But for the offseason, if I were the Nuggets, I know that Najee's probably, like, at his core, he's going to be a power forward type on this Nuggets team. And that's what they're probably going to keep grooming him towards. When Porter's out there, it's Porter, Najee, Jokic. And Najee's kind of that complementary piece for both of them. But he's also going to slide to the five. And that's what I really like. That's what I think people need to really realize here. As he continues to get bigger, stronger, tougher, higher basketball IQ, he's going to learn, and the Nuggets are going to learn along with them, that the best way to use him is when Jokic is off the floor and you switch everything. He's the five. Maybe Porter's out there. Maybe Gordon's out there. It's Barton, Dozier, Morris. Guys like that, if you switch everything, you could really improve your bench defense to the point that maybe it's better to give Jokic a break at times because you feel like you could really lock in during the regular season and maybe at times during the playoffs too. Najee has that talent. He has that capability. I really do think so. He showed his ability to sit down and guard the opposing player whether they were small, whether they were wing-sized, whether they were big. So I want to see that from him. I want to continue to see what he can do. He's going to need to improve as a rebounder. 
but he would be a great weapon off the bench. Behind Porter Gordon Jokic, if he could play some five, he could potentially get up to 20 to 25 minutes, splitting time between the four and the five spot. That would be a really, really good thing for Denver to just add to their rotation next year. Some people see him playing the three and seeing that as being a big advantage for him, given his shooting ability. Maybe he had some ball skills, whatnot. But I really do think that what's most likely for this team, given what their guard situation looks like, given when Murray comes back, they'll have Morris, Faku, PJ, hopefully Barton, hopefully a guy like Austin Rivers. Uh, Maybe they add somebody else too. They're going to have Porter. They're going to have Gordon. If they have Najee, I think you you can build some playoff lineups that help the Nuggets survive when Jokic is on the bench. With Najee at the five. Because all these other teams are going small. It's the Suns with Dario Sarge. It's the Hawks. They've got Onyeka Okongwu, who's like six foot eight. Kind of plays like a center, but he's six foot eight. And then John Collins, who's like six foot nine, maybe six ten, but he's skinny. You've got the Bucks with PJ Tucker. Giannis is kind of a cheat code there, but. Like, P.J. Tucker is still their backup center. If it's not him, it's Bobby Portis, who's not, like, super large anyway. And then for the Clippers, it's been Marcus Morris. It's been Nick Batum. It's been wings. Like, guys who are legit wings. Six foot eight guys who spot up on the floor and shoot threes from the corners and the wings. So, I think that that's where we're trending. And the Nuggets need to prepare themselves for that. They need Najee to be in the rotation. Because he is the only other player, outside of maybe Gordon, on this roster, that is capable of doing that physically. So you groom him, you get him ready, and then you play a lineup of Monte, PJ, MPJ, Aaron Gordon, Zeke Naji. When Murray and Jokic are both sitting in the playoffs, and you feel pretty good about it. That's my take. See if that ultimately happens, but that is what I would want for Denver to see. Okay, Nikola Jokic. Very good player, in case you were missing that. Very good player. Uh, Season overview. He was the MVP. He was the guy who carried Denver during their darkest moments. He was the guy who made sure that Denver didn't slip below the cracks. That he was still scoring 50 points. 43 points, 47 points, 45 points when the Nuggets needed it the most. Ultimately, when they got that help back and when Murray kind of recovered, when Porter got himself going, when Barton was healthy and kicking, and then when Gordon was acquired, like when they had all of those guys, Jokic kind of took a small step back and was able to do so for obvious reasons. Didn't have to control the ball the entire time. Didn't have to be the MVP the entire night. It was glorious. It was great. It's what the Warriors felt like. And then it kind of all came crashing down when Murray got injured. But it was really, it really cannibalized things when Barton got injured, Dozier got injured, Morris got injured, all those guys. Jokic was back on his grind. He had to carry the load. It was difficult work. 
who's handling the ball while also being the fulcrum defensively. It was tough, but he made it work, and he won the MVP. He played every single game, carried the Nuggets through the first round, and then here's what I really think happened in the second round. The talent gap crept up to them. They were starting Faku Campazo and Austin Rivers against Chris Paul and Devin Booker. The Suns were starting DeAndre Ayton, who's been the breakout star of the playoffs, against Nikola Jokic. It wasn't like they were starting Dario Saric, which is the equivalent of starting Faku Campazo. A good player, but certainly outsized by the best players in the league. Denver ultimately got back Monte, Will Barton, guys like that, but it was too little too late. They couldn't really figure it out, and ultimately, the final moment of Jokic's time was him getting super frustrated at the refs, getting ejected in a game. Not a great look. That's something I hope he continues to work on. Hopefully, he gets a little bit more respect going forward, but the fact that he was driven to that is bad. Objectively bad. So, season grade... Despite that, despite everything, despite the fact that the Nuggets didn't win a championship, Jokic gets an A+. He carried the team. He was awesome the entire year. Don't really need any uh, justification for that, I don't think. Off-season outlook. What is the most important thing for Jokic this off-season? People tell me that. His contract expires in the 22-23 season. He'll play this next year, then the following year, and then his contract will be up. He's not eligible for the Supermax yet, but once next year passes, the Nuggets can offer him the Supermax contract, which is currently estimated at five years, $241 million. It's pretty good. Pretty good money. He's not worried about that. The Nuggets aren't worried about that quite yet, though they do want to put themselves in a good place where he can commit to them long-term and say, hey, I want to be here. I want to be this team's Tim Duncan, and we can do this with this roster. It'll go a long way for Denver if they can build a team next year. That makes a lot of sense. But the biggest question facing Denver is how, in God's green earth, with Murray out, can they save Nikola Jokic for the playoffs and maybe even for international competition going forward. He was exhausted heading into this playoffs. Mentally exhausted, physically exhausted, emotionally exhausted. Got a lot going on. Potentially he's going to have a child pretty soon. He's being denounced as a uh, as a enemy of the state in Serbia right now by some of those folks because he's not suiting up for the national team, because he's exhausted, because he's got a lot going on. And it's tough, because I know that he wants to play. There's no doubt in my mind that he wants to play for Serbia. But there's a lot of drama there, stuff that I really don't want to get into. I think Team Serbia didn't really handle themselves well with regard to Jokic last time around. And... Jokic is now tired. He's tired himself out with how much he put into the regular season in the NBA and the playoffs in the NBA. That Serbian fans are like, hey, can you tire yourselves out for us now? And he's like, eh, I don't know about that. 
I don't think it's anybody's fault here. I think Murray getting injured really hurts. I think the fact that this has been a compressed season really hurts. He had two playoff runs in the span of 10 months. Got a very short break in between those two seasons. And given the pandemic, given everything that's been going on, given the fact that he got married and that he's now expecting a child in all likelihood, like, I don't blame him for wanting to sit. But I'm not a Serbian. I am not somebody who is a countryman of that country. Like, so I will never understand. Serbians, I'm sorry that this is happening, but he needs the rest. The Nuggets have talked about that. He's talked about that. Michael Malone, when he was on the press conference on Friday, said that maybe it's possible that we could do agreed upon rest days for the Nuggets and for Jokic throughout the season. Circle five to ten games that are on the calendar and then rest them. Easier said than done. Uh, because if you lose two in a row going into a rest game, you don't want to lose three in a row. And Denver is not going to have Jamal Murray at the beginning of the year to really save their skin if Jokic were to sit. They'll have Porter. Maybe he takes a leap. Maybe Denver feels that they can survive. I think that they just have to grin and bear it. It's the best thing for their their team, their franchise, but also for Jokic long-term. They shouldn't be playing him extensive minutes. They should try to keep his minutes down. The best things to do that are the agreed-upon rest days, but also a better backup center situation, which is why I'm so focused on Najee, which is why it's possible that JaVale McGee could be brought back, which is why maybe Denver brings back somebody from the outside. But they need a better backup five situation than Isaiah Hardenstein. That didn't work. If they had a better MPJ who could carry the offense for stretches, that would be good too. That'd be great. But I think one thing that they can really do, one thing that Michael Malone can really do, he's got to be disciplined with his rotations. He's got to know that he can't just have Jokic go out there and only get three minutes of rest and a half, four minutes of rest and a half. In his entire career up to this season, he had 30 total games of 38 plus minutes played, 38 minutes or more in those first five seasons. That's over uh, 300 games worth of time. It's a lot of time. In this season alone, this MVP season, he played 19 games of 38-plus minutes. Nearly two-thirds of what he had played through the first five seasons of his career at that level. So, that comes with the territory of being an MVP. That comes with the territory of being a star. However, Jokic's minutes were very high. He was second in the NBA, maybe third in minutes total this year. Over the course of the last three seasons, he's played the most minutes in the NBA. He's been a workhorse. And the Nuggets need to treat him like a thoroughbred. Or like a, a prized racing horse, in some cases. They can't just put him to work. They've got to manage his load. They've got to manage his time. 
if they get a better backup five situation, if they agree upon some rest days, if they do better with MPJ, get him to lead the offense a little bit, call some plays for him, develop the offense around him, then maybe Denver can make it work. But that's the big question I have for him. Other than that, nothing else. He's just got to get healthy. Maybe he can contribute more on defense when he gets healthy and and uh, and physically right. But we'll see. I am very interested to see how Denver does this. Very interested to see how they manage their center rotation, their big man rotation. And I think that Zeke Naji could be a big part. I would expect him to play 20 plus minutes next year, maybe as much as 25, despite the fact that he's coming off the bench. Because if you were to get into that, and Denver were to figure that out, that would help them so much. So much. That is going to do it for this episode of Pickaxe and Roll, presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, everyone. I'll have another episode on Wednesday. Not sure what we're talking about yet, but I'll let you know. Uh, and then we're going to do Monday, Wednesday, Friday, pretty much all of the offseason. Unless there's a special time where I need to podcast more, expect Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Should be good. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in. And I'll talk to you guys very soon.